0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of Coffee with Closers, where business leaders share insights on how to build businesses from the ground up and best practices for innovating in their industry. Hey, Carl, I'm super excited to have you join me for this episode of Coffee with Closers.
1: Yeah, thanks, Samuel. Good to be here.
0: Most certainly. Well, I'm, I'm always excited to have a, a fellow Chicagoan uh, join me for an episode,
1: so it's is always interesting. That's right. And it's that time of year where Chicago starts to get really nice. <laughs> it's where, where it all pays we, off, we get, all that we long get three,
0: winter. We get three months out of the year that we really get to enjoy Chicago for. Exactly. Uh, so obviously, Carl, every entrepreneur has a story of how they overcame obstacles to become an entrepreneur. I'm sure you have something very similar to share. Can you share with our audience a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey?
1: Yeah. The biggest thing was when I started draft.dev, I had been the first employee at a couple companies. And so I kind of knew what it was like uh from like the tactical standpoint of starting a business. Like what things you need to think about as far as taxes, hiring, uh key roles, operations, et cetera. But what I had no idea and was just completely unprepared for was the mental stress of going from receiving a weekly, monthly paycheck to you're fighting for every dollar you make. And I had a lot of, even though we did really well, even from the beginning, I had a lot of really long sleepless nights because of it.
0: Mm. I think the first step in starting a company where most people will, you know, kind of test their, you know, like, like they, they just kind of have to decide, is this something that I, I'm cut out for,
1: right? The mental hurdle of starting a business is by far the hardest thing. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the, we were talking about this just before, but like it School, like learning the basic schooling things you need to know to start a business is very, honestly, minimally helpful compared to the getting over the mental barriers that you set for yourself by thinking, you know, oh, I've I've always been an employee. I'm just used to being an employee. So I've found for sure the biggest struggles are mental. And the best way for me, at least, to overcome those mental hurdles is to, like, meet other entrepreneurs and talk to them and hear their stories and hear that it's not easy for anybody and we all struggle with these things and so finding peer groups has been one one really big way to help overcome some of those long sleepless nights and just like the the difficulties of telling myself like how can you really do this do you really know what you're doing
0: yeah and i think what you were getting as uh, at is the mindset concept of it right because i think we have to have the victoria mindset like i'm not a victim i can you know i can make it through uh, i can solve this challenge right because we all have different challenges i mean in your case whatever you know getting off the ground is one problem, getting your first customer is another problem, then trying to scale yourself and your time is another problem, then adding your resources. Right. So all these different challenges you kind of have to bring to you know bring to the table the right sort of an attitude and mindset to succeed.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean I had never done sales before starting this company and now I've sold Many million dollars worth of sales. Like it's it's wild to think about because that that was a definitely a self limiting belief I had going into this was like I'm not a salesperson. I'm an engineer. I was a CTO and first engineering hire a couple times, and so I knew that I was very comfortable the technical, the, the mm-hmm. writing aspect of what we do, but very uncomfortable at first with the sales, marketing, growth thinking as like a you know a, a business builder and that whole mindset. And so mm-hmm. it really is just doing it until. Like fighting through the uncomfort, uncomfortableness, discomfort, whatever you want to call that. Um, that was really the thing. And then now, if I look back, even if the company shut, had to shut down in two months or something wild happened, right, I would have so many more skills that I never would have gotten without starting a business that I have no no worries at all that I'd go find a job, whether I was in sales or engineering or something completely different. It just doesn't even phase me anymore.
0: Yeah, most certainly. And I think the 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 amount of work, the real world experience you get actually doing it, it it's priceless. Like we were talking about how college, it doesn't really prepare you for real world unless you, you actually go and kind of learn on your own.
1: Yeah, so, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I was, a, I mean, I, it took me six years to get an undergrad degree because I just am not a great, like sit in a lecture kind of student. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, starting a business, that was like, this is fun. This is yeah. real, like really applying where what all that that stuff I learned.
0: It's that yeah. It's that challenge every day. You wake up and you have something uh, new to try. So obviously, you had an interesting journey. You're a programmer by trade. You actually enjoyed writing in college. You actually even had like a college newspaper or something that you're running. Then now you ended up running this content marketing agency that targeted toward the technical geeks uh, out there. So how, how did that ever come out? Come about? Yeah,
1: I mean, it's been it's funny. It's been like a ten years of like just pursuing different things that I thought were interesting in my career. And then they sort of merged together in this weird business I never would have anticipated 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I started in college where I got into programming, the, the sort of root cause there was that I wanted to start a campus publication, an online publication. What I was seeing in the the market was that their, their, the school newspaper was doing an okay job training traditional journalists, but they were really scared of and shied away from places like Huffington Post or BuzzFeed that were starting to pick up steam and get more reputation and like kind of become a bigger player on the internet. So I, I was kind of wanted to lean into the whole like social news aspect. So mm-hmm. I started uh, an you know unofficial campus blog. In order to do that, I had to learn to program because it, I didn't really know what I was doing as far as getting a website going and all that. So I taught myself enough programming to do that. Another company hired me then to like run their Campus publication after I graduate because I didn't wasn't really making enough money to make a real business out of this thing, mm-hmm. and so that just turned into more programming mixed with publication experience, and then you know for a few years I kind of was in the more ed tech space of like uh, programming for software tools for for teachers. And then uh, eventually what happened was the last startup I worked for kind of ran into a a bad spot with funding right around the pandemic hitting and wasn't going to be able to raise money at the time they needed to, couldn't close the sales they needed to because the pandemic kind of shutting schools down. And so I started to think about what do I want to do next? I thought uh, writing is something I've always liked and I'm pretty good at this software engineering thing. All these companies have been approaching me over the last few years. Like, could you write for our company blog about our tool? I just figured, what if there's a whole business here? Mm -hmm. I had about probably 50 conversations with potential customers and and people that did become customers before I really took the business off and like really started making it happen. So from that, I had a really good sense of what people were looking for. One -hmm. thing I noticed was that not only was there a problem here where all the companies wanted to produce technical marketing content, there was also just a lot of money already being spent on it. And mm-hmm. I, I saw that there's a lot of room to spend more as well. These tech mm-hmm. companies were getting a lot of funding at the moment, especially the low level tech that's like funding the, the sort of core of the internet. So we've all moved to online first workplaces. So, um, ultimately it was just kind of like, there's a huge market demand. There's only two or three competitors. They're all really small companies. And I figured we could, th- I could throw my hat in the ring and start doing it. Um, so it went from, this is kind of the, long story short, but like in the last year and a half, it's gone from just me solo writing and working with a few clients to we have over 70 clients, we have 150 writers, about 20 staff members that are like, you know, full or, or close to full time here at draft.dev. And so it's gone from zero to 60, it feels like overnight.
0: Wow, that's a very successful progress in a year and a half during a pandemic as well. So obviously, you, you've done your homework in terms of Interviewing our target customers, talking to them, and understanding that they have a need. But you went super hyper focused. You're going after tech companies who are really going after engineers. So, how, like, talk to me. Like, I know that's your your like that was your expertise. But how did you know that I needed to be hyper focused and not just be another content marketing agency?
1: Yeah, well. So I think the biggest mistake that freelancers and small service businesses make, just from having seen them and, and met a ton of them, they all try to go broad and they all want to be like, "We are the premium digital agency for everybody," and it, it doesn't make any sense. You don't get any ability to scale up your operations when every client is a different bespoke, you know, perfectly designed little little creature. So I, I kind of went about it like. If we pick a really narrow market segment and we do a very specific type of content for them, sure, the market cap is small, but the operational efficiencies we can get and the sales and marketing efficiencies we can get are just huge. And so that's exactly what's happened with draft.dev. It's like we picked a really small market. I mean, I say really small. The developer tools market that we, we serve is a $50 billion market and it's growing by 20% a year. So mm-hmm. part of it is that like we have a small but growing market that is underserved by content providers. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, like they're willing to spend money. They have money to spend. It's not like mm-hmm. a, a a sort of tapped out market that's like just doesn't have any way to do it in fact what happens here is like these companies almost all raise money and that money has to go towards product development and growth so product mm-hmm. development is engineering costs and building out the, the tools but then growth marketing is really hard in this space because mm-hmm. not many companies Um, have really great, like, sustainable models to reach software developers, except through content and event marketing. Um, So anyway, all that to say, like, picking a really narrow niche was extremely helpful because instead of having, like, the world is my oyster and having to send millions of cold emails just to get my first client, all I did was I said, well, here's a list on Crunchbase of 100 companies that I would want to work with. I'll just start going through them. And I had people in my network at those companies, pretty quickly got a few clients, and that led to referrals of very similar companies. And we've just been really strict since day one of saying no to most new business that was not like all new business outside of that niche. And it's really helped us because now we have the same kind of process for every, every article we write. We have the same kind of process for every sale we do. And it's allowed me to step out of most of the day-to-day tasks. And at this point I'm able to kind of sit back and just make sure that all the all the pieces and, and budget are in the right places.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the 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 temptation to probably have to say no to, one, the customers that look like it could be a good fit, but not be a good fit. Also, other asks that come from the same type of customer. Well, can you write my drip email sequence? Or can you write right. my whatever it yeah. is or whatever that? Like, How do you resist the temptation for that? Or have you been kind of thinking about expanding your product offering beyond just writing content that's blog?
1: I, I think we will. And we're starting to like we're sort of doing some um some small add-ons now like we'll we'll add on keyword research or social media collateral for a client but it's very limited and very like you know focused around the core thing of of content so it all comes down to as a business owner like what do you want to do and what do you want your unique strength to be what are your unique strengths so for me personally I am very much a, um, I, this is my programmer background, I'm a set it and forget it type person. I honestly never want to do the same thing twice. I want to set a template in place and hand it off to someone else and let them do it. And I think unlike a lot of service businesses, which are like higher level consulting businesses, which require the founder to be involved in every single client, I wanted to set make draft.dev like a template based business where everything can kind of Operate in a, off a book and you don't have to be some unicorn genius to understand what we're doing and how to follow the instructions. You have to be smart and you have to know your stuff, but you don't have to be like the greatest writer and the greatest engineer all at once. So for me, it was just a matter of like, what kind of business do I want to run? To be perfectly honest, I totally understand the, the sort of like craftsman drive that some entrepreneurs have that they want to be like, the best marketing consultants. So they'll, instead of scaling out, like by having more clients, they'll just go with higher and higher tier clients. So they maybe never have more than 10 clients, but they have like, they're now charging, you know, $500,000 a month for each of those clients. And at that point you've got a real business off of a very narrow subset. So Mm -hmm. it's just a, it's a matter of preference, I think more than it is like right or wrong, but Mm -hmm. I knew the approach that would be right for me based on my personality type. I knew I'd get bored quickly if I had to be involved in planning for every single client.
0: Mm So obviously, you talked about operational efficiency and how that was a very big factor in how you wanted to go build a company so what what are some you know what are some practical ways business owners can actually think about operation efficiency as they design the business and the product that they sell
1: yeah um so some exercises that I found really helpful um one is uh mapping out our processes very regularly, like every three to six months or so, probably maybe more frequently early on, where we would say like, what are all the steps required to produce one piece of content? So our deliverable, our sort of input and output, it's like the client signs up for a number of articles per quarter and our output is those articles. And they're all standard length and size, they have standard deliverables, a lot of standardization around that. And so what it means is because there aren't a million different little pathways that your, your articles could go through, there's kind of one or two flows, and that's it. And that makes it really simple to just map out the whole like production cycle as a business owner and then say, okay, what are the key functions for each of these these pieces of the production cycle? So I laid that out and I sort of looked at like, uh, you know, function one, we need to create an outline and a brief for the article. So we'll have somebody who does that. That's all they do is outlines of briefs. Uh, we'll then get into like matching up the best writer from our pool of writers with the articles by a topic. And we'll have somebody who just does that. And then we'll have somebody who does the writing. We'll have somebody who does the editing, somebody who does tech reviews, et cetera. So we've now got like this I don't know, it's probably a dozen point system for getting an article Mm -hmm. produced, which sure it requires a lot of people, a lot of planning, a lot of like some automation to make it all happen, but everyone is focused on their little piece of the deliverable and that allows us to build really high quality content in a way that's scalable and doesn't require me to be in there day to day, like looking at every piece of content we do because I just couldn't do it anymore.
0: Yeah, and I think the opposite of what you described is trying to get one person to be really good at some of those things and then trying to have fewer touch points so, when is it uh, better to have maybe really good one person that can do all of those things that you described versus you really getting multiple people to learn just one task? And it, it seems repetitive and boring, but how do you get, you know, how do you decide that?
1: Yeah, they don't all have to be full time. That's one mm-hmm. trick. If you, you, you're worried about somebody getting burned out on doing the same thing over and over again, like, you know, the assembly line worker who's got to pull the one lever over and over. <laughs> um, in today's world, like these are people working online, many of them part time. From home at their own, like on their own time for just extra money. And so there's a lot of our staff that is just, this is a side project for them. And that's, a, that's fine because, uh, like software engineers, like they don't, maybe don't want to go do, write content plans full time at the, this moment, but there's a lot of them who will do it for a few extra bucks on the weekend. And that's kind of all we need. So that's one way to think about it. Um, the other, the other way I like to, th- to think about this is that, I don't want to build a business that requires me to hire unicorns. In other words, I don't want these each job to be this like weird hybrid of five jobs that no one is going to be in the workforce for. Instead, I want to be able to hire someone who creates content briefs. There are people who specialize in creating content briefs, right? So I can find those people and I can hire them. I want to hire people who write technical tutorials and put them into the right articles. So that's what I've found works a lot better for scaling. But again, this kind of comes down to your preference as a business owner. Do you want to scale up where you can have like an assembly line style production like we do, and you can have that, you know, theoretically scale out to infinite? Or would you rather have a very bespoke, like specialized model where you charge a really high premium, but each piece gets touched by this like very specialized consultant? And um no right or wrong answers, just preferences based on what kind of business you want to run, how removed from the operation you want to be as an owner, uh, et cetera. But, but yeah, I was definitely not the type who was going to be in that day to day for very long if I could help it.
0: But if you think about it, you were selling an extremely highly technical content that you are having, like you said, not a lot of unicorn needs to be part of it to actually produce a very high quality content that your customers having such a hard time producing. I mean, you've done a great job building the infrastructure, something really unique, you deserve kudos for that because if you think about it, right? Because it's a creative business, right? You're in a creative business producing super high quality content, but you're doing so with very efficient process. And that's where, you know, your operation efficiency comes in. Yeah. So obviously that's building the company. You had to also think about the organization structure. So in a year and a half, I'm sure coming, like you said, I think you're 30 some full-time, 150 contractors, you know, pretty fast growth. So you had to have think about operationally from structure as well. So what was kind of like the core functions that you thought needed to be part of it to remove yourself from the day to day?
1: There's been different sort of steps. Um, So the very first, like going from zero to one, let's just kind of talk about that. I, I knew my strengths. I liked writing. I liked interfacing with clients and I liked designing processes. What I don't like doing is super detail-oriented work like editing um, or uh, you know content planning, like creating those outlines and briefs and doing tech reviews of content. So really quickly, the first roles I hired were those sorts of roles because I knew for as a business owner, one thing that that you know again going to my network asking other business owners what do you have to think about, they all said like keep your energy level high. So in other words, if you get stuck doing tasks that suck your energy and make you just like want to quit every day. You're gonna quit. I mean, that's you're gonna get bored. You're gonna get burned out, and you're gonna quit and go get a job because I'm a software engineer. I can go make plenty of money. You know, there's no point doing a job I hate. And so, um, I quickly got to like this. I kind of have this habit where I time track and I look at my tasks based on what function they serve. And you know, over time, that's changed a lot. But in the early days, it was like writing, editing, sales, marketing, um, you know, whatever two or three other administrative tasks. And I just started to see like, once a job became 10 or 15 hours a week, I'm like, I need to hire for this ASAP before it gets to be a full-time job. And so Mm -hmm. that's been my pattern over and over. Um, So, you know, initially it was like, let's just hire an editor to help me out. I'll kind of be the the spokesperson, the wheel, uh, the spoke of the wheel that'll just kind of coordinate with clients. Um, Eventually we got enough clients, probably hit 20 or so clients where I couldn't keep up day-to-day communication with all of them. So we hired an account manager. Uh, and then now it 's like we have a team of account managers, we have a salesperson, we have a marketing person we have uh um a whole operations squad. That's kind of where the bulk of our staff is because um, of the kind of work we do is very human-centered. Um, we have a director of operations, managing editor, working on a tech lead, we've got several tech content specialists, um, several editors, copy editors, and developmental editors, and they all serve a different function in this big machine. But um, yeah, it's just evolved over time. And now one of the nice things about getting to this size is that my teams are starting to suggest how we improve the wor- the work up of our our structure uh, and not me so i'm not the one who has to be there designing every little bit of the organization the teams are kind of saying we see this problem we think if we rearranged ourselves like this it would fix this problem and that's awesome i mean that's like the next level thing that i'm like i love as a business owner because now it's like i'm not even involved in the structural team stuff i'm just involved in like really high level like keep an eye on the kpis make sure we've got like all of our financial statements and that this machine that we built, this whole business machine is actually running. And that's been a really fun transition as well.
0: So talk to me a little bit about the culture because you're growing super fast, right? You're adding too many people and not too many people, right? You're adding people very rapidly. Basically, that means, you know, you're, you're going at a pace where you have to be working very intelligent, you know, intentionally about your culture. So what practical step are you taking to make sure that you know, obviously you have great people that are actually coming to you with proactive ideas on how to improve processes and things like that, but also just overall company culture, building that, that really falls on your shoulder. So what practical step are you taking to, to make that a reality?
1: Yeah, good question. Um, yeah, I think this has become more and more my focus too, as a CEO and leader in the company is to think about culture. And um, I almost think it as like internal PR is now a job of mine. And, uh, you know, it's like, they, because there's, there's people on the team who day to day, they have, you know they they do they deal with the stuff that like the the revisions from clients or the the problems the issues that come up and they, we have to have people who deal with that but i also want to expose them to and show them that hey there's cool other stuff going on too that you're a part of and that your work is leaning towards and so we've gotten into a lot of little habits um so first of all we're all remote and we're all almost all asynchronous which means we try not to have many real time meetings when possible Um, in some functions, that's easier than others, but in general, we want to be able to hire people all around the world and allow them to work on their schedule as much as is reasonable. So we have like a monthly all hands meeting. Um, we, I do a lot of like email and Trello and uh, other workflow tool communications with our team, but like, um, a lot of it's off hands off. So record a lot of Loom videos and stuff like that too. But, um, yeah, so that's one thing. And the reason for that is that we want to be able to hire people who want this kind of, um. They they want a balanced lifestyle. Like we're not a, a we are growing fast for sure, but we're also customer funded, and we're not like growing fast at a big loss so that we can hit some ten billion dollar exit or anything like that. Like this is a it's a service business. It's never going to be like the next Google. Um, so we don't have to sacrifice our lives for it. And so we're kind of riding this line between let's be able to service the growth that we're promising by building good processes and having good people in place but let's not expect everybody to work 60 hour weeks. That's just not, I don't think that's a healthy way to run a business. And so um, that is the balance I'm trying to strike and figuring out how best to do it is an ongoing ever present challenge, I think. Mm-hmm.
0: Obviously you mentioned, right? You were a you were developer, you worked in a bunch of different startups and you finally ended up starting your own company, which is a content marketing company. You had to put the hat of a founder, you had to put the hat of a writer, also a sales uh, role, uh, You know, and now you're building that company to grow fast. So what? how has your approach on sales and marketing evolved uh, as you started this company?
1: So at first, I, I, I mean, it was probably just like have conversations with anybody who will. Um, mm-hmm. And I think initially I had five or six kind of customer profiles. And then within three or four months, I whittled it down to three. And we're still in those kind of like core three profiles. One thing that was really helpful as I hired on a salesperson was because our offering is so narrowly scoped and so specific. And the ideal customer we work with is a very specific type of company at a very specific size and budget. Like it, I don't want to say it's, his job is easy because it's definitely still a lot of work to, to close those people mm-hmm. answer questions and go through the like convince them we know what we're, we're talking about, but it's a heck of a lot easier than a general purpose service business where you kind of need the founder to sit on a call with every single client and say like, you know, this is why we're great. This is why you should trust me. It's all about building trust with the founder. For us, it's mm-hmm. about building trust with the brand and our process mm-hmm. that we've got. So um yeah, I mean, the approach has changed a lot. At first it was I'll get on the phone with anybody and just try to hear their problems and see if we can solve them. And then eventually it got to a point where, okay, this is our very narrow type of customer we serve. Let's make a template for what a sale looks like. And then I hand it off to a salesperson and now he does of the work um, for that. And it's great because he makes a commission off of this relatively straightforward structure. He's got a lot of inbound deal flow because we get a lot of referrals and we're also, we get mentioned a lot in sort of niche press for our our type of world. Um, We're also, because again, we're so narrowly scoped, there's very few other companies get thrown around at the same time as us. And so uh, let's say like accelerator programs, a lot of times we'll throw our name around within their their batches. Investors have referred us to a lot of their their investments because they'll a lot of times have similar investments in, in similar kinds of companies. Um, yeah, so it's a really nice organic pipeline uh, that helps him stay very busy. We don't have to do much cold outreach. Um, mm-hmm. But again, it just all comes down to like, we picked a really narrow niche that was a little bit underserved and then we've got a scalable process to help do everything.
0: It almost seems counterintuitive what you're describing, right? Because oftentimes people are super afraid it goes super narrow because it really f- makes you feel like you said, you know, the market cap may not be big. So you're like, oh, my addressable market is too small. I may not have enough, you know, opportunities in the pipeline. All of those things that you're talking about, it actually is somewhat eliminated just by having super narrow focus. Yeah, um, that,
1: That's been my experience. I mean, you know, I think there are certainly service businesses that go the other approach. And you can look at like the really big consult- consulting firms, a McKinsey type firm, and be like, well, they do all sorts of business consulting. Yeah, but they're <laughs> like, you know, 50 years old or something. So you can't compare apples to oranges and expect to, to get what you want. I think for me, I was looking at this from day one. It's like this is a lifestyle business. I want to own the whole thing. I want to bootstrap it. I want to be customer funded. And in order to do that, you don't need a massive market. So some of it is helped by the fact that we didn't have these big, like necessary expectations. I think this is kind of a, a flaw in the venture funding system, is that everybody in venture wants you to go for a uh, whatever, ten billion dollar company, or else it's not worth doing. And maybe it makes sense with their business model, but like with a service business like this, that's not true. It's not you don't need to be a ten billion dollar company to be a very successful and profitable service business.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that that whole me- mindset and you know the framework that all these SaaS founders have really is detrimental to the 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 that entire um, you know market, right? Because every SaaS company is driven by such. I don't know. I don't want to call it greed, but there's just this, you know, like this primary focus is on top line growth. Yeah. How how are you doing on ARR? How are you doing on MRI? Right. That's the only focus. Doesn't care what cost are you actually doing it. Just do it. Yeah. I mean, and, and you see, and you see all these SaaS companies that are not profitable but all they have is they're spending all their energy on customer acquisition, right? They're spending money on every channel possible just to acquire a customer. And and nobody's Um, asking,
1: is it the right customer? Like, (laughs) did we actually find product market fit with the core group that really loves us? And once you find that, the growth happens organically. You get this flywheel because those people know each other and they all tell each other about it. And I think that you're right. Like what happens is companies try to, they try to go into scaling mode before they found product market fit. And so what they do is they spend a lot of money just Trying things instead of like focusing in on who's the core audience that we're building this for and what would make them love us so much that they tell 10 people about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I agree with that. I think that's a, a big flaw. And it, it, part of it is the pressure of uh, the way like venture rounds tend to go is that, you know, you raise a seed and if you don't have the traction needed for in revenue for a Series A by a certain date, you start to look really unattractive to the next round of investors and it gets really scary for a founder. And so I think there's unfortunately some like gaps in that system that don't quite work if you don't fall into an ideal bucket.
0: Yeah, so interesting story. So I had an intro I did an episode with John Miller who was Marketo founder. And he talked about his experience of actually going too early to raise funds. And he said he, he, you know, he literally diluted the, the value of the company when he exited, even though it was extremely sizable exit when Marketo was acquired by, uh, I think it was Adobe, for like $2.4 billion or something. Some crazy num- number. But, but his share in the company was so small, right? Some fractional of it, sure. share of a company. He didn't really get much out of it. So I think he also said, right, because he went too early to actually raise money, like valuation was wrong. So he gave up too much of his equity early on. And all of those things really worked against him, you know. And, and there are other stories too where SaaS companies they needed the cash because they needed that fresh, advantage, fresh mover advantage. And if you don't get the market share very very rapidly, someone else will take the idea and will scale. And that that's the fear. Yeah. Um, and there's know, nothing wrong inherently.
1: SaaS-y. Yeah, nothing wrong inherently with venture capital. I mean, I don't want to talk too negatively about no, it. like yeah. I think it's a bad thing. Um, but I just think that founders often think that that is a prerequisite to success. When mm-hmm. in absolute terms, I mean, it depends on how you wanna measure success, but like there's a lot of people who've exited slow growth service businesses that they ran for 10 years, never had an unprofitable year. They come out of it and make way more than say a SaaS founder who raised a ton of money, and gave up a bunch of equity. So it's like, you have to look at starting a business as, there's not just one way to do it. There's not just the tech crunch way, the VC way, there's a lot of different ways. And the nice thing too, is that like, for me at least, I was looking at starting a service business as a great starting point. Maybe I don't, you know, the next thing I do in five or 10 years is not going to be a service business. Maybe it will be something different. I don't know. But either way, now I've got the experience of operating a real company with millions of dollars of revenue going through it, which makes me a lot more interesting and attractive to a future investor. And I'm going to be able to capture and hold on to a lot more of that value for longer than a first time founder.
0: Yeah, I, I have to guess that you read Jason Fried's books. Um, I, I haven't like read, I haven't read them, but I'm
1: familiar with a lot of what
0: the he concepts.
1: says. Yeah, yeah,
0: because yeah. the a lot of the concepts you're talking about, I think he, he, I think he also talks about like the the customer funded model because he didn't raise any capital. He also likes long form emails to his employees. He doesn't like meetings. Uh, there's a lot of things that he talks about that I, I almost seem like you know. Yeah, you we're, both are Chicago. <laughs> so maybe.
1: yeah, we're kindred spirits <laughs> in some ways. And I think you know his ethos has kind of. Uh, spilled out into other areas of the, the sort of alternative startup community that maybe I would call myself part of. Uh, yeah, there's there's just more than one way to run a business. And one of the fun things about being an entrepreneur is that none of those pathways are set when you on day one when you start the company. So I could decide to go, we don't use Slack. That's a really weird decision that most companies don't do. Uh, but I was like, this is my company. I don't like Slack. I hate getting bugged by this thing. I don't want this like thing on my phone that's gonna tell me when other people want me every second of the day. Uh, email me I'll check it twice a day that's all I need and it it works like it doesn't you don't need it in every business so it's just like assuming that the defaults are correct is a bad way to go about any kind of business venture because you can't necessarily assume that until you test them
0: it's funny that you brought up slack i think salesforce decided to give them 17 billion dollars <laughs> apparently that chat tool was worth that much yeah. they couldn't just go figure out how to make it make it themselves they probably have a couple of thousand engineers for whatever reason they've figured. Well, I mean, the market penetration
1: is is real. And, and Slack so has true. done a great job positioning itself as like the go-to you know, team communication tool. Like Again, no knocks on them as a business either. And I think in certain businesses, real-time communication is way more essential than ours. We're, we're kind of lucky in that we're, the kind of business we run is very like um, paced out. We know when our deadlines are, we have plenty of time working up to them anyway. But yeah, it's... it's going to be interesting to see, um, yeah, how that slack and teams, I think teams now seems to be the one that's fighting with it.
0: You know, now maybe even HubSpot would someday buy you for some really big multiple. That's the goal. Yeah. Um, So obviously as a business owner, right, as business leaders and founders, we have to make a lot of decisions. So strategic decision making an important part of our day job, right? So are there some framework that you follow to really narrow down your, uh, you know, your choices and really figuring out which I, you know, which one am I going to move forward with?
1: Yeah, I have a couple thoughts on this. I mean, there's, these get mentioned a lot, so this is not really original, but um, the Eisenhower matrix is really helpful. That's the whole urgent, important um, kind of like uh, dichotomy of, you know, something urgent and important and you need to do it as soon as possible versus something that's like, not urgent but it is important it means you need to make a plan for it and go over time so things not urgent or important you probably just need to backlog it or ignore it um, so there's a whole way of like decision making around that that I try to like use on a daily basis with the team um, the other thing that I found really helpful has been pushing decisions down the chain as far as is reasonable so not mm-hmm. making decisions like one thing I think uh, so a lot of times, business owners I know who get to the stage we're at where they're doing like, you know, millions in revenue and they start to get like a big team, they become the bottleneck for big decisions. And so in, in other words, like maybe the founder needs to sign off on every new sale that comes in. Like our sales contracts are, you know, fifteen to $25,000 or something for a quarter. And if I, as a founder, had to like look at everyone and make sure the company was good and all this, like... There'd be so much work for me to do just to approve sales contracts. Um, whereas now we have rules in place. And then I I just started telling my sales guy, "You make the rest of the decisions, the finer points that we, the edge cases we forgot about, and then we'll review them every week. Rather than you coming to me and blocking the sale, I'm going to say you do it. I'll give you the you know carte blanche to make mistakes. You're going to sign some bad deals, and you're going to make some good deals that I would have done differently. But like, come to me every week. We'll review them instead of it being like. Oh, Carl's got to make that decision. Carl's got to sign off on that. So mm-hmm. things like that, like pushing those decisions as far down as I feel comfortable doing and then pushing a little further than I feel comfortable and just seeing what happens. Um, I think that's been really great for letting the team sort of feel ownership. So like one of my big, uh, personal metrics as a business owner is how much time can I take off from the business and the thing not fall apart or, you know, mm-hmm. people are all able to do their jobs and get paid, et cetera. So I took two weeks off at the end of last year. My goal is like four weeks at the end of this year and you have to push the decisions down you can't just take them all and be like oh yeah i'll I'll tell you how to do that or this is what i would do or whatever you just have to be like nope make a decision we'll go over it if it's wrong otherwise just you'll learn from it
0: that's crazy i've never heard that as a kpi just how much time can i take off as a performance metric for the company <laughs> well
1: it's you know it's so many small businesses are so reliant on the founder for a very long time And it is just, to me, it seems dangerous. Like I'm one human and I could, you know, drop dead or get into a serious family incident where I need to be checked out for a week. And what happens? Like, do I want people not to get paid because I had to do that? That's really selfish. And so I'm, it's more for everyone's, like, Knowing that this company lives outside of me, I think it also helps me separate from it a bit more in a healthy way. Um, it's very tempting as a founder to like love this thing like my baby. I mean, I've never grown something like this before. So it's, it, it's, it's awesome. But at the same time, uh, it's not my baby. It is a entity that survives without me, hopefully, and, you know, is outside of me and hopefully contributes to the lifestyle I want. But like, it's not the only thing I'm going to do in my career either. So anyway, I think, yeah, it's a good exercise to force some of that separation.
0: That's awesome to hear. And obviously, you know, I think from all the things you've described, you have really good frameworks on how, every, how you do everything. So I'm, I'm assuming you have some productivity hacks. Uh, as developers, you guys are all very, very, very much about efficiency and you know, time hacking. So are there any productivity hacks that you follow that really helps you in terms of getting, um, you know, focused work done?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, you you kind of we've touched on a couple of these time tracking and knowing where I'm spending my time and when if I'm not spending time on a really high value, high leverage task, I need to figure out a way to delegate it or cut it. Um, I have a a kind of system for um, delegating things where um, I I sort of look look at it like, do I need a full time person? Do I need a part time person or do I need just like a gig worker? And you kind of decide based on each task uh, what. I don't know, like which one of these people is most appropriate to delegate to. And then, um, ideally it's like, I want to be only focusing on the things that move the needle for revenue in a significant way. And all other things need to be delegated as much as possible. That's kind of the rule I play in my head at this point. Um, mm-hmm. so that's one. And then another one is, uh, don't get lost in the email Slack like constant influx, right? Like the, so many business owners feel this pressure to respond to email every second, every day, or have it open on their phone all the time or get real-time notifications. All I hate all that stuff. Like it, I try, I don't always do this, I'll admit, but like I try to get myself into like two checks of email a day and just let it go in between. Because how many things do I get that if I didn't respond in 12 hours, something really, really bad would happen. Like minor annoyances would happen, you know? And that, that's, like we're a big enough company to ride out some minor annoyances at this point. So um, yeah, I don't, I try not to get in there and live in the inbox. I try not to make myself rely, like a necessary step in many processes. Um, and you know, it's a journey. It's not perfect. Every few months I'm reevaluating that, but those are some of the big ones that I think uh, were really helpful to me. Uh, and then forcing myself to take time off and be like, make that a key metric for the success of the company is, is another one that we already talked about.
0: Awesome. Knowing what you know today, what advice would you give your younger self? Uh,
1: you know, I have a theory about advice. Like People don't listen to advice, myself included. Uh, <laughs> people, like, they need to live it. Like, I needed to live this. I, I needed to be a business owner to see what this was like. You know, there was the only thing that I, I looking back, kind of realized I could have done... I don't know. I'm hesitant to even say this. The thing I'm telling myself now, the the advice I'm giving myself now is think bigger and be more ambitious because you sort of grow to the level that you believe you can get to. Most entrepreneurs do. In other words, if I thought of myself as I'm a small service business owner and that's that's kind of my cap, that's where I'm going to live for the rest of my career. That's fine, but that's where I'll be for the rest of my career. There's no way I'm going to jump up to like, I don't know, running a $10 million your SaaS or something like that, like whatever that next tier up in difficulty and, or let's say it's managing a 200 person team of full-time people. I, I wouldn't get there if I believed I was a 30 person company owner. Uh, and so I'm trying to, think bigger with everything. And part of that comes down to surrounding myself with other people who think bigger. That's been a big thing. So I've joined, um, entrepreneurs organization. I'm part of some other like startup organizations where I get to meet with other founders who are a step or two ahead of me that are thinking that next level, which I'm like, that seems crazy, but that's a good thing because that means that I'm like pushing beyond where I think it's possible. So maybe that's the advice I would give is like, don't limit yourself to something, but also you know, to be perfectly honest, I wouldn't have had the confidence to keep dreaming bigger if I hadn't jumped out and done this kind of like small niche business that that has grown really fast. So yeah, again, I don't know if I'd give myself that advice in the past, but I would now.
0: Awesome. Well, Carl, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for sharing some of your life experience and wisdom with our audience. Thanks, Samuel. This episode of Coffee with Closers is brought to you by One IMS a leading digital marketing agency helping businesses win new customers. To request a free marketing ROI audit, please visit oneims.com.
1: If you enjoyed this video, please share it. To make sure you never miss an episode, please subscribe.